Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'm going to do something a little bit special, something a little bit different, and talk just about my views and what I think Philip Dick views were on the frontier, particularly, and more broadly, of Dick's views of the American uh, historical experience and, and really world history, because I, I think we can talk about world history in terms of, of Dick's writings as well. I'm getting this mostly from a, an essay I wrote. I was starting a series of essays on Philip K. Dick's philosophy of history, and I only got through like the first one. And this one I was writing my blog. So I'll just kind of read through my blog post, maybe adding to it as I, you know, as I think about it. But uh, that's, that's the plan here, just to kind of read through this blog post and, and let us meditate a little bit on how Philip Dick saw history. And I think this ties to a lot of the stories we've been reading about. Because I, in my view, I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about how Dick sees history. It's one of these problems where when people look at his later works, they tend to get a view of Philip Dick and they project it backwards then and, and somehow misinterpret or miss some of the things he said, particularly in the 50s and early 60s, which maybe he didn't fully um, agree with anymore by the time he got to his writings of the 70s and 80s. First, I don't know of any literary analysis or scholar who's actually written about Philip K. Dick's philosophy of history at all, um, at least not as revealed in his fiction. And he didn't really write much about it in his nonfiction writing. Nexus Jesus is so opaque and so weird and so much influenced by the strange events in his life in the 1970s that I don't know that's really a source we can use. I'll probably get to it at some point in this podcast, but for now I think we just kind of got to set that aside and, and deal with it later. Uh, so what we got here are his, his works, his, his literature. But I do think from the very beginning of his career, Dick was concerned with the fate of human civilizations. If you think about some of his early works like The Gun um, or The Great Sea or... Um, Project Earth, The Impossible Planet. These are works ultimately about the fate of civilizations. Uh, even works that have a more optimistic view, like Mr. Spaceship or The Variable Man, are ultimately about humanity's place in the cosmos and the future and the frontier. Now, while his stories and novels never really reach the level of Isaac Asimov's foundation novels in respect to kind of providing a broad historical vision, they remain memorable in posing important questions about the role of resistance, individual agency, uh, how we collectively experience historical change, and, and ultimately the fate of civilizations. Right? The neglect of studies of Philip K. Dick's philosophy of history maybe is not so shocking, um, in because many of his most famous and memorable works suggest the limits of history. I'm thinking here of works such as even the do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, you get a very kind of a, a place where history has stopped, right? I, I think there's a series of works in which we get images of human kipple. Now, now, if you don't know what kipple is, kipple is defined in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep as kind of the garbage that builds up, rubbish that builds up. And I think for Dick, this can apply to literal garbage, you know, just the accumulation of junk that doesn't get cleaned up. Entropy, I guess, is what Kipple is. But I think we can add that we can expand on this and say that Dick 
defines a lot of the people in his stories as Kipple. And I, I, all the people on Earth in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep are essentially Kipple. They're the left behinds. They're the genetic defects. They're not able to have kids because of, their, of the radiation. Civilization has moved on into the cosmos. And what's left is this Kipple. Uh, the people left over on Earth. And, you know, this is something that's sort of missing from Blade Runner, to be honest. They do talk about like, going off to the colonies, but they don't really hit home on this quite as much. And in other later novels, such as The Maze of Death and Radio Free Albumeth, we have characters in kind of an eternal return, where the Empire never ends. And this is where Dick is playing with the idea of the Empire never ending, or maybe we still are living in the Roman Empire in some way, and that one historical epoch is as much like another historical epoch. You know, maybe just with a different varnish on it. Now, these later works are horrifying because they imagine an end of history. Now, there's a lot of historical theories that do this. Develop, like, good old modernization theory has this idea that civilizations will go through certain stages, but they're all going to end up with a kind of democratic, capitalist, free market kind of thing, right? But Marxism, communism, had the same kind of vision of an end of history. Right? Now, this is a bit un-American because America had a frontier. And in, in a frontier, you have the continuation of history through these frontier experiences. Now, Dick's most, one of his most well-known novels, and particularly now, thanks to the TV series, is The Man in the High Castle. And this is set in an alternated universe where the Axis wins the Second World War. However, Dick casts doubt on this setting by placing it in the context of by placing in this context a novel of a third alternative reality. This is where the Allies win. Now, this isn't just our world, because how they win in this novel, I think it's called the Grasshopper or something or other, whatever. This novel in The Man in the High Castle, this novel within a novel, doesn't describe the events that happen in our world. It describes kind of a third reality. Now the Allies win, but they don't follow the historical events of the real Second World War that we remember and can read about in our history books. So Dick's here experimenting in ontological ambiguity. Um, but this also creates poor material about thinking about historical change, because there's not really a narrative. We're just in a place where our history is false. Right? And we can't dream of a future because our history is false. How can we have a grounded relationship with the past without any metaphysical certainty about the past? All right, and this is going to be a problem throughout Dick's writing. Once you start getting into the alternate realities and the fuzzy truth, right? Um, it's not just that I don't know who I am or maybe I'm a robot or maybe this isn't true. Everything around us, including our past and understanding of the past, isn't true. Now, as a historian, there's, of course, some truth to the fact that the history is a foreign country. It's odd. Even when we study the history of our own societies, not foreign countries. I, I do world history mostly, but when we study even the history of, like, the United States, where I'm from, you know, the past seems weird. People think differently, right? I mean, you read Southern slaveholders' defenses of slavery. They come off as very weird, right? There's things maybe you understand. You can draw some Jeffersonian philosophy from here or there. But largely, they're thinking with a set of values that we don't share. Uh, and it's even worse when we get to, like, trying to read ancient or medieval history. Now, Dick was very much interested in early modern history, as you probably know. So the, the past is a foreign country anyways, and it's worsened by the fact that our present in many of Dick's stories, anyways, our present is confused. Dick commonly, uh, well, Dick had a profound interest in, in history, certainly, especially the early modern period. Uh, his famous, most famous, or his most favorite 
composer was Dowland, right? Who was an early modern British composer of, of lute songs and things like that. He commonly gave his characters encyclopedic knowledge of history and Western humanities as well. It's not clear what historical works he read and digested throughout his career. I, I mean, there might be people out there, and if you're out there and you know what Dick had on his bookshelf, please let me know. I'd love to know. I, I asked once on a Facebook group, and no one really could tell me much of anything except what I already knew. Um, but we can look at the works he references in his books and assume cautiously that he read them. Um, and the one that he does mention quite a bit is the British historian Arnold Toynbee. Now, another one that he doesn't really mention directly, but I think he has to be aware of, at least through osmosis as an American, and that is the frontier historian uh, of, of the United States, Frederick Jackson Turner, who worked out of the University of Wisconsin and is most famous for his essay on the significance of the frontier in American history. Now, his awareness of Toynbee is made clear in the opening, really, though, I think the opening chapter of Time Out of Joint. The character there is studying mail order. He's part of a mail order book club. Right? I don't know if you remember these. You used to get books every kind of book of the month kind of thing, and you, you paid a certain amount, and you got discounted books that you ordered. He got an abridged volume of Toynbee's Study of History. Um, study of History is this massive work. I, I think it's like 10 volumes, and it was, but it's, it's, it was produced commercially in like a one-volume edition. And I think I'll talk a little bit about this later on. Now, Regal Gum, the main character of Time Out of Joint, identifies this as an important historical and cultural text. Dick also mentions Toynbee's history in Eye of the Sky, strongly suggesting more than a passing familiarity with its work and its thesis. Now, it's more difficult to prove Dick's awareness of Turner. I really can't do that. I can't find any reference where he said, you, should, you know, this character read Turner. But whether he got to Turner through the cultural DNA of the 1950s science fiction, which I think is really likely, or through direct encounters with the author, or through his experience of just being in California, in the graveyard of the American frontier, I don't know. Um, but he's there, at least the ghosts of Turner are in Dick's work. As I hope to show below, or I mean later on here, I guess, uh, Turner's frontier thesis is often applied in Dick's writings from the 1950s and the early 1960s. Okay, now let's start with Toynbee. Um, Arnold Toynbee was a historian active during Dick's lifetime. Uh, he wrote, I think, from the 30s up into the 40s, I want to say. So he was active at that time. He wrote this massive multi-volume work called The Study of History, and that's what he's known for. Uh, Toynbee invented the field of world history in many ways, including many of its most important innovations, such as the study of the relationship between civilizational characteristics and environment. Toynbee essentially argued that civilizations arose out of a particular struggle with their local his environment, both natural and human, uh, like the people on the steppes have to encounter living on the steppes and raising animals and all that, and their civilization is going to come out of the struggle they have with that environment, or the local people, geography, whatever they're facing nearby. The innovations that they create to match that environment lead to their institutions, their ideas, and their values, and therefore define each civilization. Therefore, each civilization is rooted in a certain struggle with the environment, and it's fine-tuned to match the needs of that specific context. And in a sense here, we can apply the anthropic principle to civilizations, right? 
the Anthropic principle is the idea that the reason we the universe seems fine-tuned to us is because we evolved to meet the needs of that environment. We can do that with each civilization as well. Right? So it's not that the Chinese succeeded in China because of their brilliance. It's just that they're Chinese because they succeeded in that environment. Once that victory over the environment is won, though, civilizations will tend to mature into decadence and stagnation because they no longer have that struggle. And finally, over time, an inevitable collapse begins. So that's Toynbee. Okay, so Turner. Um, Turner's frontier thesis predates Toynbee's by about three decades or so. He's writing in like 1899, 1900 or so. Frederick Jackson Turner's most memorable arguments place the frontier in American history, specifically. Earlier historians tended to look to maybe like Puritan New England or even Europe as the home of American values and the driving force of North American history, particularly New England. And of course, many historians were New Englanders or out of Harvard. Uh, Turner is, I don't remember where he was born, but he did most of his work in Wisconsin, which, you know, was more in the frontier. Turner argued... Uh, Instead, that the frontier was where American identity, institutions, values were made and remade. Turner's groundbreaking essay was the 1893, The Significance of the Frontier in American History. He's writing this at the time the frontier is quote-unquote closing, right? Basically, where people had settled, people, uh, you know, white Americans mostly, had settled most of the West. Of course, Indians had lived there and the land was stolen from them, but, you know, U.S. civilization, if you will, had settled most of the continent. And then the question is, what do we do from here? Some said we need to go abroad, you know, f expand overseas. And of course, you have, that's when you have the age of American empire in the Pacific. He begins with the claim that while European frontiers were static, like the lines between nations, like if you go back in a history book and look at the boundary between like France and, and the German states, states. Of course, modern Germany wasn't unified until 1871. But if you look at that, it's pretty much the Rhine. Uh, I think sh even Charlemagne, you know, saw the Rhine as a natural barrier between two parts of his kingdom. Um, back to the Franks and the Carolingians and, and the, the Capetians, they all kind of saw the Rhine. And Henry the Fourteenth was trying to make the Rhine the boundary that's a lot of the cause of a lot of his wars. The point here is these frontiers are kind of static. Cultures didn't kind of move around much. Uh, now the borders might be a little porous, but essentially they were um, stable. But in America, the frontier was mobile. It moved across the, like a wave across the continent. And here's his thesis right from the essay. Quote, the frontier is the line of most rapid and effective Americanization. The wilderness masters the colonist. It finds him a European in dress, industries, tools, modes of travel, and thought. It takes him from the railroad car and puts him in a birch canoe. It strips off the garments of civilization and arrays him in the hunting shirt and the moccasin. It puts him in the log cabin of the Cherokee and Iroquois and runs an Indian palisade around him. Before long, he's gone to planting Indian corn and plowing with a sharp stick. He shouts the war cry and takes the scalp in orthodox Indian fashion. In short, at the frontier, the environment is at first too strong for the man. Okay, I end quote. So we have an environmentalist view here that we kind of become what our environment makes us. Uh, and for him, it's really an environment defined by the values, culture of the Indians. Uh, so does he say, I would say he thinks here that Indians are a product of their environment as well. And, and they're more passive result of their, you know, compared to Europeans. Right Now, 
get this environment though in this environment these european men put on the moccasin as he says now all this is not a bad thing this isn't like becoming a barbarian because it allows the frontier resident to be reborn as an american fully liberated from the stifling European influences of their culture, their institutions, their monarchy, their view of Christianity, whatever it is. Turner wrote, quote, moving westward, the frontier became more and more American as successive terminal. Um, I got a typo here, um, but as successful terminal more moorings result from successive glaciations. So each frontier leaves its trace behind it. Uh, so just like how glaciers leave certain geographical residue, so the frontier leaves its trace. Um, and that's why you might have regional differences in the United States. The rest of this essay describes this movement of the frontier, particularly in the rough and uneven nature of the West, of the westward movement, the wave moving west, but ultimately has focused on the roots of American democracy and American intellectual character. Now, while Turner provides a more American dynamic model, and Toynbee offers up a model that's a little bit more rigid and static and more old world, if you will, they're actually quite similar arguments. In fact, it's fair to see Turner's frontier as the environment that had to be overcome for American civilization to emerge in a Toynbee-esque sense. Both would agree that the end of the frontier would cast doubt on the future of American civilization. Unfortunately, by the time that Dick had begun writing, the only hope for a revived frontier could be found in the imagination of science fiction writers. This is, of course, before Kennedy announces travel to the moon is as a, as a national goal of the United States. Now, wh what does this have to do with Dick's uh, philosophy of history? Well, I, I think there's p periods of Dick's writing where there's different kind of historical visions. In the first phase, corresponding to the years 1947 to 63, which is most of Dick's writing, right? Here we see Dick as largely a follower of the Turner model and a believer in the need for an interplanetary frontier for humanity to have a future. The frontier was a geographical space for historical change or even future evolutionary change. This perspective reaches its climax and denouement in Martian time slip. The second phase overlaps with this. It really begins with Martian time slip, matures in the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. And it's kind of like, I think the second phase is really represented by these two novels. In these works, we see the limits of the frontier. Instead of becoming a place for human recreation and recreation and innovation, the frontier is transformed into a banal existence of suburban civilization at best. At worst, it's a degraded place providing no hope, but only misery and mental illness. If we want to say something about it, it's, Dick's, it's during this period that Dick realizes that the frontier is just going to be California with suburbs and in and out burgers and you know drive-in movie theaters and all the other banalities of suburban life that he hated so much the final phase which i say would begin with the maze of death and continuing through the valis trilogy presents the end of history and its replacement as an eternal return i would even put scanner darkly in this phase or um I forget the name of the other work. Dick wrote too many books for me to always remember at a moment's notice. No, oh, Full My Tears. Sorry, Full My Tears, the policeman said, I think fits into this as well. The famous phrase uttered by Dick repeatedly in his later works are things like, the empire never ends. This is code for the end of human social transformation. So 
at some point if I ever this is really just gonna be about that first phase the, the frontier phase um, but later on I might fill up the rest of the picture by looking at the other periods and if you don't agree with me here if you think I'm kind of periodizing him improperly let me know um, or if you know of anyone who's written about this concept I would love to hear about it both individuals and movements uh, are going to interact in these novels in ways that are reflections of this theory of history. So sometimes they're going to dream of the frontier. Sometimes they're going to really live in the suburban hell of the Mars of the Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge. Or they're going to be trying to break free of the Black Iron Prison of stagnation, as they will in later novels. Now, I'm not generally a fan of like the later novels of Dick, especially Vallis. And the Valage trilogy, but I do think there there's the struggle to break free of the Black Iron Prison of Stagnation. So there's a, a rebellion against the end of history or the eternal return. I should say that's really they're two different things, but uh, similar enough, I guess, for our purposes. Now, in the short stories we've been reading on this podcast, especially those published in 1953, Philip Dick established the hope of interplanetary and interstellar frontiers, going so far as to suggest that humanity cannot progress without coming to terms with the frontier. New planets and new environments were not just a solution to population growth or environmental destruction, they were crucial for human evolution and progress. In the story, Mr. Spaceship, Terra is bogged down in an endless stalemated war with the people of Proxima Centauri. Through the use of organic automated technology, the people of Proxima Centauri create an unbreachable ring around their planet, preventing the end of the war and stopping in the tracks any Terran ex ex expeditions and expansion into the galaxy. Terran military experts focus on finding a technology that could outmaneuver the Centauran technology. And eventually they decide to try to use the human brain to replace the mechanical system controlling the ships. While not conscious, it would have increased abilities and quicker response times. The prototype fails because the brain that was used, that of a dying and aging professor named Thomas, maintained its consciousness and then used the ship for another non-military purpose. He uses it to settle the frontier. He takes his former student, Philip Kramer, and leaves the solar system to find a new planet to settle and to re give a rebirth to humanity. Professor Thomas believed, like Toynbee, that each civilization had a central defining characteristic. For Terrans, the characteristic had become war. Thomas, through the mechanism of the ship, tells his former student of his vision, quote, The world has been fighting for a long time, first with itself, then with the Martians, then with these beings from Proxima Centauri, whom we know nothing about. The human society has evolved war as a cultural institution, like the science of astronomy or math mathematics. War is a part of our lives, a career, a respected vocation. Bright, alert young men and women move into it, putting their shoulders to the wheel as they did in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. It has always been so. Thomas believes that only by projecting humanity into an entirely foreign environment could it remake itself free from the civilizational burden of war. While it would take centuries to develop, the new colony established far from Terra would be capable of breaking free of the deeply ingrained habit of war. The story ends with the question of whether a new environment, a new frontier, is enough to overcome the problem of war, or if war is an unfortunate part of human nature. Philip Kramer, however, is convinced of the new possibilities. Uh, to take another work, uh, The Piper in the Woods, written at the same time as Mr. Spaceship, this shows precisely how the frontier could be a 
space for recreating human values and expectations. Now in that story, workers and soldiers on a forested asteroid suddenly either come back with a strange disease, causing them to think they're plants, or uh, created the most clever form of passive labor resistance. As more people return from the forest thinking they're plants and refusing to do any more work, the entire enterprise is imperiled. The military sends a psychiatrist to investigate. When he realizes that they all share an emotional tie to an entity they call the Pipers, he explores the woods himself only to come down with the illness himself. The humans of the story are tied into an industrial system. Perhaps borrowing from Lewis Mumford, Dick has one of the characters describe the operation as the peak of human innovation. He says, we have a garrison. We have a modern garrison. We're probably the most modern outfit in the system. Every new device and gadget is here that science can produce. Harris, this garrison is one vast machine. The people are parts. Each has a job. The maintenance crew, the biologist, the office crew, the managerial staff. Look what happens when one person steps away from his job. Everything begins to creak. Nobody can leave. We're all tied here, and these people know it. They know they have no right to do that, to run off on their own. No one has that right anymore. We're too tightly interwoven to start doing what we want. End quote. By encountering these aliens on the asteroid, now the reality of who these Pipers are isn't clear to the end of the story, um, but the crew slowly begins to realize that being tied to a vast integrated machine is not the end of human evolution. It's actually a stagnation. In this case, the frontier offers the opportunity to rethink whether humans were simply parts of a vast machine or capable of individual dreams, even if they're based on these childhood memories of long gone green spaces. And there's a, a suggestion in the story that all these people are remembering a time when Earth was green. Maybe it's in the genetic, it's in the DNA, or maybe it's there was still some green left in their childhood. This theme plays out more subtly in works like The Infinites and Strange Eden. In these stories, the interplanetary frontier literally becomes the location of human biological evolution. In The Infinites, a group of scientists and explorers are expo exposed to a type of stellar radiation, which rapidly accelerates their evolution. While the story assumes a form of teleological evolution coded into human beings, it is significant that the acceleration must take place beyond Earth, beyond Terra. One of the more malevolent people undergoing this transformation named Blake plans to return to Earth a conqueror to usher in a new era of humanity. He is stopped by the others, along with help from hamsters who had accelerated even faster because they were exposed to the radiation first. Dick also encodes in this evolution greater powers and a distinct morality. As one character warns, Blake will want to go back to Terra, not as an ordinary man, but as a man of the future. We may find ourselves in relation to other Terra as geniuses among idiots. If this process keeps up, we may find them nothing more than higher primates, end quote. Now, I'll just set aside here and say this kind of is very similar to what Dick has to say about posthumans. Uh, I haven't really done any of Dick's posthuman stories yet. They don't start, I think, till a little bit later, and, but I'll get to them soon in this podcast. The even more advanced hamsters realize this danger and force a band of now posthumans to return to Earth unaltered, warning about advancing too fast. Now, Strange Eden is a little bit sillier, but it's about an explorer who meets an alien, and she warns him away, but his curiosity prevents him from taking her advice. She explains how she observed and guided human evolution over the centuries. 
After the man gives in to the alien's beauty and has sex with her, she undergoes a form of teleological evolution similar to that of the crew in the infinites. In this case, he turns into a giant cat, the fate of all men who are seduced by the alien woman. And I think there's all kinds of like lions and tigers, cat people, you know, on the on the planet. This is significant as one of Dick's rare ventures into the currently popular concept of an ancient alien astronaut. But it's yet another example of how humans need some sort of outside pressure to evolve. In both of these stories, location is deep in space, affecting the pioneers first. But it's in the 1953 novella, The Variable Man, where we must look at Dick's central, which we must look at as one of Dick's central stories, articulating the theme of the frontier as the agent of historical change. And I did a very long episode on The Variable Man uh, a month or so ago. This brilliant story is so powerful because it combines Dick's passion for the old way of doing things, the tinkerer with his desire to see humanity break out of its stagnations. That it's not necessarily just technological progress that brings us to the future. It's also, there's something about the old way of looking at the world that's valuable still. Especially, he, he, was, he was enamored with the tinkerer, the crafter, the modeler. His ability to tinker, the main character, Thomas Cole, his ability to tinker with machines allows him to manipulate technologies that a modern bureaucracy can only use for war. Due to planning, every technology has its role and a planned obsolescence makes repairs unnecessary. Thomas Cole, although not understanding these technologies, has an uncanny ability to fix broken machines and create new applications for other technologies. It sounds like a call for a conservative resistance to technological bureaucracy inspired by Lewis Mumford's studies on, quote, man and the machine. Yet, it is what Cole creates that helps us look towards the future. It is ultimately technology that gets us to the future. The Icarus Project was a failed effort at faster-than-light travel. It hoped that military leaders could use this as a weapon of war. Uh, in the war with the Proxima Centauri, no battles are fought. They're all simulated based on the current tech level of the belligerents. The Terrans hold off their attacks until the commuter simulations make victory likely. Slowly, the odds are shifting in Terra's favor, although it's Thomas's Cole's arrival that makes prediction impossible. Because he's the variable man, right? While Icarus failed as a faster-than-light engine because it causes massive explosions, it's reworked, or it's imagined to be reworked, into a brutal weapon that can potentially destroy the sun. So one of the more creative scientists finds Thomas Cole and commissions him to complete the Icarus. And so there's a tension here. Do we fix the Icarus to make it what originally was intended to be? Something that could bypass the blockade and bypass war? Or make it perfected into a weapon that can destroy a sun? Um, Cole fixes it and makes it what it originally was intended to do. Um, the military is horrified that their ultimate weapon failed. The result of this is the war is lost. But a handful of more forward-thinking people imagine new boundaries for humanity at the end of the war. The scientist um, Sherikoff says, quote, The whole universe is open to us. Instead of taking over an antiquated empire, we have the entire cosmos to map and explore. We have God's total creation. Thus, old-fashioned industry and creativity become key to humanity reaching out into the stars. Reliance on a stagnant bureaucracy creates only sta stability. Now, that, of course, makes us think of Dick's very early story, the 1947 story, Stability. Okay, so in The Variable Man and Mr. Spaceship, the interplanetary frontier is largely aspirational. We're left only knowing that humanity will be trying something new beyond their home system at the end of the story. 
But in the 1954 story Souvenir, we get a look at how Central Frontier may develop a distinctive culture and economy and even an attitude towards technology. So in this story, Frank Williamson led the first group of settlers beginning what would be a great period of Terran expansion in the galaxy. However, this original expedition was never heard from again. Much like the English colony at Roanoke, it just disappeared and its fate could only be speculated on. It would not be the last, however, and humanity spread slowly and surely. Because most of these colonies remained culturally, economically, and politically tied to Terra, their cultures were homogenized in a vast galactic empire. In fact, maintaining this uniform culture is the key task of the state. They justify an often brutal application of this policy through the language of progress. Quote, there are two reasons. First, the body of knowledge which men have amassed does not permit duplication or experiment. There's no time. When a discovery has been made, it's absurd to repeat it on countless planets throughout the universe. Information gained on any one of the thousand worlds is flashed to relay center and then out to the whole galaxy. And the second reason is if uniform culture is maintained, controlled from a second source, there won't be any war, end quote. This is an interesting example of a society committed to technological progress, but lacking diversity or real cultural change. This empire is the empire of the technocrats. And a similar motto is pursued in Dr. Futurity, which is really interesting on all these issues. And I'll do several episodes on Dr. Futurity uh, in a little bit. Williamson's world developed aloof from this central control and could play with creative reconstruction of what they would. It's almost as if Roanoke Colony disappeared, was lost, but still existed somewhere in like the woods. And people find it someday and they find that it's developed a completely different culture. Rooted in American culture, or I mean in English culture, but different enough that it's not really recognizable. They borrowed uh, from a diversity of human cultures, encouraging conflict among tribes as a means to promote and defend their honor. They used technologies that were human-scaled. They kept the automobile, for instance, but rejected robots. Work is valued for its own sake, unlike on Earth, where, where work is abolished with stunning efficiency. What resulted is a mixture of tribal villages, medieval manors, and specialized factory communes. Not only, you almost got kind of a Soviet model, an ideal Soviet model, I guess. Uh, I'm thinking back to small s Soviets from the, you know, all part of the Soviets during the Russian Revolution. Uh, not only are the cultures of various Earth cultures preserved, there also is a mix of variety of economic systems used throughout history. In spite of their conflicts and differences, they created a growing body over their entire society. In doing so, they created something entirely new in the history of civilization, a functioning grassroots anarchy. I, now, it's a kind of a different context, but if you've read Transmetropolitan, uh, William Ellis has wrote it. I, I, Robertson is the author, or is the artist for that. But if you read that, there's uh, an issue where they talk about how they maintain these cultural enclaves throughout, and pe the people there don't even know the modern civilization exists outside. They just live like as ancient Mayans or or as um, I think one is like a Republican Party of the 20th century. Um, you know, all the different cultures that have been destroyed have been preserved in this way. And even e like even their shorter life expectancy and their diseases and their cruel, barbarous customs are sustained. But that's done as kind of a reservation preservation model. Here in Williamson's world, we have more of really this grassroots anarchy. Now, the rediscovery of Williamson's world was unacceptable to the authorities of the empire, especially when they refused to incorporate. Now, what incorporation meant is basically submerging their diversity into the one homogenous intergalactic 
or interplanetary culture. Um, and when they refused to incorporate, their planet was destroyed. And long story short. I had to stop again because of construction next door. You probably heard a bit of it. So I, and there it's starting again. I, I want to, you know, it's, it's hard for me to find time to do these recordings, especially uh, because this has been going on for months. Even I went back to America. I thought when I come back, it'd be gone. It's still going on. So I'm going to wait it out a little bit longer. I'll finish up in a minute. And like that, I'm back. Um, I want to be angry, and sometimes I am, but, you know, they're DIYing it, so I guess that's something. Well, anyways, moving on. Um, as with Variable Man, Souvenir looks back to find the best of humanity in the ethics and skills of the crafter or in the diversity of historical potentialities and looks forward to how those could be applied to the creation of a new world. In these stories, Dick almost challenges the prediction of the end of history by seeing the entire record of human accomplishment as evidence that there is a future, or at the very least, we should reserve some hope that humanity can learn from its mistakes and build on its greatest cultural achievements. Now, in The Planet for Transients, we get further exposition on Dick's frontier thesis in surprising ways. Due to some ecological catastrophe, Earth is no longer suitable for humans who have hidden in a series of bunkers. Rapidly running out of food and supplies, the survivors explore the surface for new supplies or a means off the planet. They find the surface environment is alive with post-human life, but all of it's deadly to humans. After encountering these post-humans, who are notably are not very violent or mostly indifferent to the survivors, at the end of the tale, the survivors find a means to travel to another planet, leaving Earth for the post-humans while finding new frontiers for themselves. In the context of this or other works on the frontier, this is not simply humanity fleeing a world they destroyed, but the promise of a new path to human developments. One group, the post-humans, will develop Earth into a new way, and the fate of the humans who depart is not known or will likely result in a new culture and new civilization. Now, the world that Jones made is yet another early work by Dick that believes strongly in the need for a projectural mission for humanity, most easily found in the frontier. As the novel opens, Earth is still recovering from a nuclear war. The post-war world government, the FedGov, that was established in the war's aftermath, worked to eliminate what they saw as the root cause of war, and that was ideological certainty. To do this, they created and implemented a philosophy called relativism. In practice, it trained people not to make unsubstantiated opinions. Those who openly make dangerous ideological claims without evidence could be sent to labor camps. Relativism did create peace and it was enforced by a police state, but it made progress hard and it suppressed a basic human desire to transcend the logical. Even the exploration of space slows down, likely because it was seen as the project of the dangerous dreamers. Now, just aside, this might be a bit of the danger of maybe a too much of a scientific worldview. I'm, I'm an atheist, so that's not so much something I fear, but the idea that Anything that's stated must be demonstrable with evidence. You know, it's is that that's what relativism is, uh, promotes here, and it creates this kind of stagnation. And I'm kind of sympathetic with Dick's criticism of it here because I, I do think we need dreamers still. We need imagination, and that imagination will always take us beyond the rational and beyond evidence. Right now, there's ways that can go in really bad ways when it becomes doctrinal, when it becomes a set of rules, when my imagination becomes truth that I enforce. That's the problem. Um, but imagination itself is very creative and powerful. There's magic in it. Um, so, 
The exploration of space slows down, likely because it was a product of these dangerous dreamers. Into this world emerges Floyd Jones, who is a precog who can see exactly one year into the future. When he's arrested for using this talent to predict something that only the government would know, he's revealed that he has the ability to read the future, and he also sees a grand vision mission for humanity. His knowledge that aliens called drifters were coming to Earth opened his eyes to the need for a bolder human mission. Quote, there's a whole universe. You spend your time rebuilding this planet? My God, we could have a million planets. New planets, untouched planets, systems of them, endless resources. You sit around trying to melt old scrap. Pack rats, misers, boarding and fingering your miserable pile. End quote. Now, Floyd Jones is the villain of the novel, but in this context of, this, of his contemporaneous works, the other things he was writing at this time, Dick seems to hold his admir admiration for this view of humanity and human progress. Now, it's much the same argument in Time Out of Joint. The universe we are introduced to is set in the 1950s, but we quickly learn that this is a timeless, historyless construct carefully designed to match the needs for the insane man, Raggle, the insane protagonist, Raggle Gum. While Gum believes that he is living a life, it's actually frozen in the 1950s of his youth. No matter how long, spoiler alert, if you haven't read Time Out of Joint, I suppose I just gave it all away. Um, but no matter how long he stays there, there'll be no change in his life. The middle class suburban community is Dick's strongest metaphor for the end of history. As the world falls apart for Gum, he learns about the truth. In reality, humans are engaged in a brutal civil war over the issue of human expansion into the stars. While the Earth government is working to prevent space exploration, the quote-unquote lunatics are fighting to preserve what they see as the central human need for creativity, curiosity, and rebirth, all of which are grounded in the explorer's mission. Despite the lunatics, now lunatics, it's a pun, I guess, because they're on the moon, it's lunar, but because they're, you know, they're being propagandized as crazy. Now, they use nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction to secure their independence from Earth, but Gum learns to appreciate their point of view. A life of cultural recreation promised by the lunatics is preferable to the static life of an endless 1950s, which promises no change or evolution. And it's worth pointing out that it's in this novel that Dick mentions the study of history, which also shows cultures in decline and stagnation. Thus we see that, now I've just mentioned some of the works. There are many more I could talk about. I could talk about Solar Lottery. I could talk about all, most of the posthuman stuff. Um, Dr. Futurity, uh, certainly there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, Vulcan's Hammer. Crack in Space. Man Who Japed. On and on. I could do a lot here. But we find the same kind of frontier story. A frontier repurposed you know, into what am I trying to say here? Um, it's the ending of the frontier that causes problems. I think it's in a in a man who japed where the frontier is re repurposed into a penal colony, suggesting that the people who want the frontier are insane, right? The dreamers are insane, and therefore they're sent to penal colonies. Um, it's a bit like that in Solar Lottery too, where the Prestonites are considered crazy kooks because they dream of a 10th planet that could be explored and settled. More than a depository for the unwanted, however, colonies like the penal colonies and the man who japed become spaces for cultural creativity or resistance or diversity in contrast to a culturally stagnant or homogenized earth. 
Uh, this is also true in Kraken Space. So, I mean, I got a lot in Kraken Space. That's really what that. I probably should just say a lot more about that. Maybe I'll have a whole essay on Kraken Space later. But on the opposite side of the coin, we see an association between cultural rebirth and repurposing with the frontier. Dick's perspective on cultural stagnation and banality is geographically bound. The later development of Dick's historical vision needs to be examined in the context of this early career optimism about the frontier, which promises an escape from the end of history. And therefore, when we get to his more pessimistic works that do seem to suggest an end of history, I, don't, I think we should not forget that Dick believed for much of his career that the end of history was not inevitable, that the frontier was a way out. Um, and that's all I have on you. I'd love to hear what you think about Dick's view of the frontier. And I hope this essay can put into context some of the other things I'm saying about some of Dick's early earlier work. And um, when we get to those kind of mid-career stuff, I'll come back and I'll, I'll talk about the other two phases of the frontier as I see it. One on kind of this, the suburb, the spread of the suburbs. And the second is the kind of the, the eternal return or the end of history. Um, now I won't be for a long time until I get there because I got a lot of work to get to before I get to the mid 60s. But this is a good kind of tentpole, I think, of, of of what we can say, foundation for what we can say about Dick's views of, of history. But if you don't agree with me, if you have different points of view, please share them. Let me know. If you like this, please rate, subscribe, share. Um, let other people know about this. Um, but mostly I want to hear from you what you have to say about this. So thank you so much for listening and thanks for bearing with me as I, as I go off the text for a little bit and, and talk a little bit about something that's near and dear to my heart. And, and when I, whenever I'm reading Dick's works, I, I, I think a lot about these issues of frontier and history, partially because I'm a historian, but, um, that's it for now. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>